was often a long time between meals. He had to find a way. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Wednesday, September 6th, 2017. I'm William Turton. Today on The Dispatch, and Derek Gayo on Indian Country Today, an indigenous publication that's ceasing operations. Unless there's big changes, especially financially, there's just going to be a big hole, as we had before Indian Country Today. And I talked to Katie McBride about rats and addiction. One of the many problems with the Rat Park study is that it's super vague in terms of what the actual implications are. Here's The Dispatch. culture. Hi, Anne. Hi, William. So you've been covering the closure of Indian Country Today, a popular indigenous publication uh, that's closing its doors. Yes. The publisher of Indian Country Today, Ray Halbrader, announced that the publication would be taking a hiatus. As we all know, publications, websites um, close left and right, but or say they're going on hiatus and sometimes they don't come back. So there's like a real sadness right now that um, we're losing Indian country today. And so tell me a little bit more about the site. What would they cover and why were they so important? So Indian country today is a national, was a national news outlet that covered everything from culture to environmental law, finance, um, housing, a whole host of issues written and edited by native reporters or people involved with Native communities in the U.S. And um, I actually spoke with Jason Begay, who is an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Montana and was the former president of the Native American Journalists Association. And he talked to me about the significance of the outlet. What's going on with Indian Country Today Media Network is a tremendous loss for the entire uh, industry, um, both mainstream journalism and in Native American journalism because um, it's one of the more higher profile outlets that, were, that that's out there. Mm-hmm. And just talking about Native American journalism, um, having that outlet of being able to express yourself or to get your story out there, it's pretty slim because mainstream media is, um, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to say ignoring us, but they're, they're, they're focusing on bigger things right now. One thing that I think is really important about Indian country is that they covered things like um, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests and missing and murdered indigenous women long before other news outlets kind of got mainstream news outlets got their eyes on it. And they're covering issues that matter to indigenous people, and they're doing that well because the people that work there are indigenous people, right? Right. They're covering issues that, you know, are important to everybody. Just me as a non-Native person, Indian Country Today is a super important outlet because it's where you can learn about, you know, all kinds of things, but especially things that are happening in Indian Country from an Indian perspective. And that's something that I spoke about with Simon Moya-Smith, who was a reporter for Indian Country Today. We would have the Native response to things like you know, the slashing of, of uh, money to government programs that affected our communities, but not just our communities, but all communities. Um, talking about immigration, you know, uh, sexual abuse, you know, just the native lens on everything that you can, that, again, you're not going to find in mainstream newsrooms. I mean, right now, the only newsroom that is self-reporting that they suck at hiring Native Americans specifically was NPR. Mm-hmm. Um, last, I checked, apparently 0.03% of their newsroom is native. Um, and so this was the 
place where even mainstream news and at least, um, as we saw it, uh, more than a million uh, unique viewers a month would come to read about natives today or our response to Trump, our response to everything. What's going to happen after Indian Country Today closes its doors? When I talked to Simon, he kind of agreed that unless there's big changes, especially financially supporting Native-led publications, there's just going to be a big hole, as we had before Indian Country Today, of national media coverage. I mean, I have hope, but I'm also realistic that, um, I mean, we can hardly get mainstream media to care uh, about, you know, covering Indian country the way they cover other communities of color. Um, so that's why I'm more or less thinking that to get the money necessary is, um, is going to be far more difficult than I think people understand. And Derek Gallo is a staff writer here at The Outline. The future. In 1979, Bruce Alexander, a researcher at Simon Fraser University, separated rats into two cages, a stimulating one and an isolated one, and gave them morphine in order to measure the effect of the environment on addiction rates. The so-called rat park experiment was intended to debunk some of the flawed understanding around addiction at the time, but it was flawed in some pretty serious ways. Nevertheless, it's cited even today as evidence. Katie McBride looked at the study to find out why that is. Hi, Katie. Hi. So you wrote this really interesting piece about a rat park study, which went on to shape a lot of thinking about drug addiction and why people become addicted to drugs. So first, what was the rat park study? So the rat park study basically was designed to test the prevailing notion at the time, which was that drugs are inherently addictive, sort of rooted in the like, just say no Reagan policies. And this was designed to test that notion. So all of the experiments that had been done using rats up to that time basically had them in pretty standard lab rat environments where they're isolated, generally unhappy, blah, blah, blah. So this researcher thought, well, what if, you know, you have one in the control group of like unhappy lab rat cage, and then you create this super fun rat park where they can have all these other options for recreation. And, you know, will they still go back to this morphined sweetened water that was in both the cages? Right. Um, you know, the same amount. And he found that the one, the rats in the rat park didn't go back nearly as much. The rats in the isolated cages were something like seven times more likely to go back to the morphine water as opposed to the rat park ones, which is interesting. I mean, environment certainly does have an impact on addiction. So were the rats that were not in rat park, were they supposed to simulate like poverty? One of the many problems with the rat park study is that it's super vague in terms of what the actual implications are. It's like environment matters. So I think, yes, he's implying that it simulates poverty or, you know, anything that, I don't know, could impact a person's environment. And the way it's been extrapolated is like if a child is growing up 
in a situation of neglect, not necessarily because of poverty, but like they're not having, you know, they're not developing like normal attachments or healthy attachments, you know, then they would be more likely to be the unhappy rats. Right. Uh, So it's a little bit nebulous as to like exactly what he meant by it, but it's been extrapolated to mean any number of things. When the researcher behind the Rat Park study went to publish his findings in 1981, he was rejected by Science and Nature, those journals. Yep. And then eventually did get, end up getting published. But after he published his study, there wasn't any pickup on it, right? Not much. I think in the scientific community, there was a little bit of interest because the way he framed his claims were so bold that other researchers were like, okay, we're going to try to replicate this. I think that it was sort of a, a niche interest maybe to sort of to test that, but it didn't really break into the mainstream consciousness until 2005, 2008-ish. This study was flawed in a lot of ways, not just the kind of initial idea of the study or the fact that rats aren't humans, but there were also a lot of other flaws in it. And what were those? Yeah. So I went into it not not knowing the the other flaws. I was just like, this is sort of ridiculous to take this one study that hasn't been consistently replicated. So it's been replicated by some people getting the same results, but other people have done the same study and not gotten the same results. So it's not a consistent thing. But there are actual methodological problems too. I was reading a 1996 study that purported to, you know, try to replicate it. (laughs) And in the notes, they were like, yeah, since uh, Bruce Alexander, the researcher for the Rat Park study, (laughs) like lost eight days worth of data, we took these precautions to make sure that wouldn't happen to us. And I was like, wait, he lost eight days worth of data? Like, of course he had problems getting this published in like top tier science journals. And then later, I also found out talking to uh, Sam Snodgrass that Bruce Alexander had, he basically allowed the rats in Rat Park to procreate and then, (laughs) like, had the babies or the rat pups be part of the Rat Park experiment. But then that changes the control, obviously, significantly when you're not allowing the same level of interaction happening in the control group. Basically, he's he's changing the genetic component and a gender component in the rat park group and not in the isolated group, which adds a whole new slew of potential variables that don't have anything to do with environment. Why do you think the study that is so deeply flawed continues to be cited? Because it's it's so useful. I mean, it's like if it were true or if the results had been able to be replicated over and over again. And we also had lots of human evidence that it was true. It's, it's an incredibly useful way to talk about something that is true, which is that there is often an environmental component in developing an addiction. If people are using this as their justification, if anyone sort of looks under the hood of like, well, what did this really say? They're going to see that it's flawed. And I don't want them to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, well, your claims of, you know, addiction having an environmental component is wrong. 
And also it just bugs me, just bugs the crap out of me to see this study keep being cited and knowing that it's flawed. <laughs> it just, right. I don't like it shows up like in all these places in addiction recovery literature. And it just, it's like, I don't know, part of it's just like a personal, <laughs> like it just, it bothers me. Katie McBride is the associate editor at Anxi Magazine. That's it for The Dispatch. You can catch us here every Monday through Thursday. And now you can follow us on Spotify. Just search for World Dispatch. I'm William Turton. Thanks for listening. More stories tomorrow.